Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, there isn't anything on the coast of America or even around the world that doesn't bring up at some time, at some point or another, climate change. Uh, Climate change is a major force that's uh, affecting coastlines around the world, if you believe the science, in terms of sea level rise and other impacts. Uh, It's such an important topic, and there is an underlying belief uh, in the scientific community that that process is driven in large part by the discharge of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which is uh, driving climate change. And that's the topic of our show today. That's right. Uh, It's going to be a good one. And it's going to break out your uh, pencils and your notepads and maybe a calculator. (laughs) Just kidding. We're not going to get that technical. But it is a show about 45Q, which is a tax provision. But it's really a show about climate change adaptation. It's an attempt now for our government to... uh, create an incentive for carbon sequestration and and those kind of activities to uh, decrease our carbon footprint uh, as a nation. And this will have a dramatic impact on the American shoreline and and indeed shorelines around the world, very likely, uh, where a lot of the securing of uh, CO2 might occur. Uh, So I'm really looking forward to today's show, Peter, and we have two great guests. We do. We have two really great experts to talk to us about. You mentioned IRS code 45Q, and in this show, uh, listeners, you're going to be hearing a lot about that. We're going to refer to it as 45Q. It is a provision of the Internal Revenue Code of the United States that creates and expands a carbon sequestration tax credit. In other words, a reduction in uh, tax liability for participating companies and entities that do good things to take CO2 out of the air and to get it somewhere else. And that's called 45Q. It's a very complicated tax provision. And we have some, we have two guests who are going to help us understand it. Joining us today are Brad Crabtree. Brad is the director of what is called the Carbon Capture Coalition. We're going to learn more about what that coalition is. He is also the Vice President for Carbon Management at the Great Plains Institute and is joining us from North Dakota. And uh, we also have with us Jason Laneclough. And Jason is the Director of the Louisiana State Energy Office. Louisiana is a state that has a great interest not only in oil and gas production, but also in carbon sequestration and the possible market for sequestration activities. Uh, Two great guests to walk us through 45Q. So, Tyler, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. As am I. we got a ton to learn. But before we do, let's have a quick word from our sponsor. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by... LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. 
That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Brad and Jason, thank you for taking time to join us on the American Shoreline podcast. And uh, to help our audience understand this incredible action that was taken by the U.S. Congress in 2018 in the passage of 45Q and the adoption of the rules by the Internal Revenue Co- uh, Service, which occurred on January 6th, uh, one of the good things that happened on January 6th. A date 6th, which will live in infamy. A date which will live in infamy. But, uh, <laughs> Brad, uh, thank you very much. And as the director of the Coast uh, Carbon Capture Coalition, would you in our, introduce our audience to your organization? Sure. Thank you. The, the Carbon Capture Coalition is a group of just over 80 companies, unions, and environmental organizations that are all working together to advance federal policy like the 45Q tax credit that will allow for the investment in and development of carbon capture technologies, whether they're at industrial facilities, cement, steel plants, refineries, you name it, uh, uh, coal or natural gas fired power plants, or even uh, uh, taking and capturing CO2 directly from the atmosphere. And so this coalition has been working together for 10 years and uh, it's focused for seven years on reforming and expanding this 45Q tax credit with the goal of having a financial incentive for these carbon capture technologies, just like we've had for many, many years for things like uh, uh, wind energy or, or solar energy. And we've seen with those industries how rapidly they're growing and what an impact those tax credits have had. And so the coalition has, that was their number one goal for, again, the better part of a decade. And I think one more thing just to add about the coalition is even in this time when there's so much conflict in our country over energy and climate policy, this group of companies and labor unions and environmental groups uh, operates on consensus. They agree, all 80 plus organizations agree on the positions they take. And that's kind of an extraordinary thing. That is that is interesting. And uh, Jason, I'd like to understand what this what's in it for the state of Louisiana. What's what's uh, the the core motivation for the state of Louis, Louisiana's involvement with the Carbon Capture Coalition? So that, that's a tremendous question. And thanks thanks so much for the opportunity to to join today. I, I think that for us, uh, I can give you a personal perspective of what it's like to go to a carbon capture coalition meeting because about two and a half years ago, I went to my first one after I met with my new boss. I came over from the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, CPRA, worked in the coast for a number of years. And um, one of the first things that I worked on or got to work on was looking at carbon capture and geologic sequestration for Louisiana. And what Brad just described was a, a large working group of folks from different walks in industry, large companies, small companies, NGOs, environmental groups. And the very first meeting that I went to, I remember just sitting in a room and seeing a lot of different perspectives being brought up, how they wanted to craft a vision to move forward. And and I saw just what I thought was just a a very tremendous opportunity for Louisiana to be involved with something. And my, my boss, Secretary Tom Harris, had gone to initial kickoff meeting for the governor's partnership with the Carbon Capture Coalition and, and I saw firsthand that this was a, a big group and that they were all steering in the same direction to try to look at long-term emissions reduction, industrial decarbonization, working with industry to try to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And we just saw a tremendous opportunity to, to get engaged and to try to position Louisiana 
to, to really play an active role with this group because it's done tremendous work on the federal policy side. We're involved from a state perspective. We're, we're very excited in terms of where things have gone and just where the bill is now in terms of seeing the, the level of interest in companies who are coming to the table who have what we call a social resp responsibility to operate in our communities and who are really championing a lot of these efforts to try to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And the coalition has done just a tremendous job in, in setting that up and I think getting the excitement level up to make sure that companies remain interested. I just have a, a, a quick uh, follow-up for Brad. Uh, Jason uh, mentioned this social responsibility and it, you know, obviously uh, our society has benefited tremendously from the energy that we get when we combust uh, carbon molecules like ethanol and methane and octane and you know fuels, <laughs> airline fuels, etc. <laughs> we can do incredible things with that. It's it's it, it is uh, emblematic of our modern way of life. Uh, but at the same on the same token, we understand the science. Peter, in our introduction to this show and all around the American shoreline, we are impacted directly by climate change. The the unforeseen or in some cases foreseen consequences of all of this combustion we're doing. And uh, Brad, I'm, I, I wonder, you know, this is a group that consists on consensus, but there's a lot of industrial people there. Is, is it true that there's a consensus right now in this industry to fix this problem? I would say that is, yes, generally true. Obviously, there are members of Congress um, who, on, on one side or the other, who may not be supportive, or there are some companies that uh, do not prioritize this, just as there are some environmental groups that would prefer to support, say, renewable energy and energy efficiency and not carbon capture. But if you look at the big, big broad middle, so responsible uh, coal and oil companies, industrial companies, uh, technology companies that are bringing new solutions to market, uh, labor unions representing American workers in the various energy and industrial sectors of our economy, and then many of the of the mainstream environmental and conservation organizations are all of the view that 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 carbon capture and its geolo its use in geologic storage has to be part of the solution for our nation's energy and industrial economy and for addressing climate change. It's it really is such an important initiative and. For the for the listeners out there, just by way of background, uh, Brad and Jason, uh, the the research that we've done indicates that 45Q has been part of the Internal Revenue Code since 2008. It has been amended several times in 2009, 2014, 2018, and most recently here January 6th of 2021. Um, Brad, what is a tax credit and what is carbon sequestration? Well, so a tax credit is um, an incentive that the government provides to undertake an activity that if there were not that incentive is likely not to occur. Uh, that's not, it doesn't mean it will never occur, but not occur at the level that's needed to solve some particular problem. In this case, this is a tax credit for capturing and geologically, capturing CO2 so it does not go into the atmosphere, 
uh, and then storing that CO2 geologically so it never returns to the atmosphere, or using that CO2 to manufacture products uh, that and, and then that, so that ends up reducing CO2 emissions in the process. And the challenge is, of course, that in our economy today, uh, industry, companies are producing energy, manufacturing products uh, where they don't, aren't required to reduce their CO2 emissions. And if you're a company that wants to deploy one of these technologies that captures and manages this CO2 instead, without this tax credit, you're essentially operating at a disadvantage in the marketplace. So in some ways, the tax credit is an equalizer. It gives an incentive and an opportunity for those companies that are innovators and want to do something new and solve a problem to step forward and do it. And also for the investors in those projects, it helps kind of buy down some of that commercial risk. Now you asked, what is a tax credit literally? What it is is it's if you are if you're a company and you have corporate income taxes, uh, you can use that tax credit against your income taxes and lower your tax bill. Right. So, so that's I, effectively how it works. So we're using what 45Q does and and the 2018 uh, amendments to 45Q, uh, sponsored by Sh- Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, a very progressive environmentally sensitive uh, coastal United States senator joined by many other Senator Heitkamp from, I understand, from North Dakota. Can you talk Mm -hmm. about the coalition of senators and House members who worked together to pass the 45Q amendments in 2018? I, I can. And let me start by just kind of explaining what brought them all together. If you think about uh, the emissions reductions that are required to meet climate goals, especially at mid-century. Uh, it's estimated by the International Energy Agency and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that about 15% or even more of our total emissions reductions need to come from carbon capture. So if you're a member of Congress who cares very much about the climate, this is an essential strategy. It is absolutely necessary to meet our goals in 2050. Uh, Carbon capture also allows companies, entire industries, to reduce their carbon emissions without necessarily shutting down or retiring a facility, whether it's an industrial manufacturing plant or a power plant or whatever. And so if you're interested in preserving high wage jobs and tax base for communities and regions, then carbon capture technology is very attractive because it allows you to achieve these environmental goals while maintaining and even growing this economic activity. And then the final piece is the just the future viability of many of these industries themselves. You know, an, a company that uh, produces fossil fuels or has a very, very carbon intensive process, industrial process like steel making or cement, if they are to be viable 10, 20, 30 years from now, they have to be able to deploy technology that will manage these emissions. And for many industries, these emissions are are part and parcel of the production process. So if you think of all those benefits, what we experienced with the 45Q legislation is it brought all the different sides in Congress together that are normally at odds with each other over energy and climate legislation. So in the Senate, we had 25 senators, a fourth of the United States Senate, co-sponsoring the bill. And you mentioned Sheldon Whitehouse, who is the leading climate spokesperson in the United States Senate, a, a liberal Democrat. 
Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, for example, was Senator John Barrasso, who represents Wyoming and is in Republican leadership in the largest coal producing state in the country. And they were partners together in that process. They supported each other. And then you had lots of senators in between politically. In the House, we had 50 members of the House co-sponsor the bill. That's about just about 10 percent of the of the House members. And there were uh, 35 Republicans and 15 Democrats. And this is the first time in the history of, of US climate legislation where you really had the entire political spectrum from liberal to conservative supporting the legislation. I want to uh, ask Brad, excuse me, Jason, this question is for Jason about the situation in uh, Louisiana and how uh, just exactly how 45Q in its in its newest incarnation uh, is being received by the industry there. What are you seeing in terms of uh, new investment, new types of enterprise coming in, trying to take advantage of these rules in your state? Sure, that's a that's a great question, and and I actually have heard our director of our injection and mining division, uh, Stephen Lee. Uh, who I work with very closely. He he is basically the person who's the focal person on the regulatory side. And he made a joke with a, a group that we spoke to last week and said that, you know, several years ago, three to four years ago, he didn't get a whole lot of calls on, you know, companies who were interested in sequestration. And and now he he has told me openly that he's talking to probably 20 to 25 different companies who are interested wow. in doing sequestration projects. So the, the level of interest has 45Q has been a game changer in terms of level of interest. And I think for us, we were extremely fortunate. We had a, a group of legislators, even as far back as 2009, that did some initial legislation. When they when carbon sequestration and EOR was something that was just in the early infancy stages of development on the policy side here. And so we had passed the bill you know, uh, a long time ago that we basically brought back up and dusted off. And that's kind of served as a catalyst for us to go and couple with 45Q to say, you know, we need to do some things on the regulatory side to position ourselves. So two years ago, we, we focused on what's called a primary enforcement action with the EPA. And what that does for us is instead of a company filing a permit for to do sequestration, which they which is called a class six injection permit and having to go through the Environmental Protection Agency region six. If you're in Louisiana, they can come directly to DNR and file a permit. So we are in the process of applying for primacy. There are only two other states in the United States that have gotten that, and that's Wyoming and North Dakota. Um, that process took almost six years. We're on track to hopefully uh, reduce that almost by more than half in terms of getting primacy. And the reason why that's so important is that we have what we like to call a one-stop shop on the regulatory side for companies who want to come in and do EOR and sequestration projects. They can submit a permit. They can work with our staff. We work very closely with EPA. And I think that for us, that's something that we focused a lot on. You know, we, we had uh, Dr. Steve Carpenter from the Enhanced Star Recovery Institute come in and train staff over a year ago and just try to anticipate that there was going to be significant interest. And, and again, a lot of times you do that and the interest doesn't always come. Um, luckily for us, we, we've taken a lot, of, a lot of those steps and we're actually seeing the interest. And what I mean by that is you're starting to see not only talking to companies who are interested in doing this type of work, 
but you're starting to start to see project announcements. And I think that for us, that's the most exciting thing. Cause I mean, if, when you do policies and you work in, in this space, things don't always come to fruition. So we had our first um, uh, project announcement that probably happened about four to five months ago, uh, Gulf Coast Sequestration, a private company, uh, a large group of uh, landowners in West Louisiana announced a private investment of a large sequestration facility in West Louisiana. They've already started the process of applying for a class six permit. Uh, we have several other companies that we would consider close to making project announcements for additional sequestration work. So to say that uh, there's a lot going on in Louisiana, I think is an understatement and it's a, and it's a very good thing. Um, Governor Edwards has also started the uh, Climate Initiative Task Force, which has really helped to facilitate a lot of interest and investment by companies in terms of time and resources. And that has started uh, several months back and it's brought a lot of state agencies together who are all working together to develop net zero goals by 2050. So there, there's a lot happening in Louisiana in, in a good fashion. And I think that that industrial investment and that level of interest in geological sequestration is directly related to 45Q and the benefits that it's providing. And so for us, we, we are trying to really make sure that we're ready on the regulatory side and give companies a very clear path forward to be able to do projects here. And, and we, we do a lot of work with other states and the coalition provides just a, a tremendous opportunity for us to bounce ideas off of and to work with other states. Not every state has all the tools and pieces that Louisiana has. We, we have a lot of opportunities to implement projects and we're very hopeful that this is going to turn into what we would like to consider a carbon economy for Louisiana that's going to preserve jobs and allow our industry to pivot and to look towards the future to be able to really start to manufacture lower carbon products and to be around for a long period of time. Yeah, Jason, I, I think coming from the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, uh, many of our listeners are familiar with that organization in the state of Louisiana that is battling to preserve and restore the Louisiana coast. I know you have a deep appreciation of the work that is necessary to protect Louisiana's wetlands, habitat, and, and uh, communities from sea level rise. Uh, Louisiana, also a major oil and gas producing state, of course, uh, so very tied to the production of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, it's encouraging to hear that the changes made to 45Q in the adoption in 2018 in the statute are starting to drive activity for carbon sequestration. And Brad, I would like to get real basic and fundamental for our audience out there. You guys have made a couple of references to a deep carbon, a deep geologic storage or secure geologic storage of CO2 and other carbon oxides. So folks out there were talking about methane and other carbon oxides, not just CO2. And you've mentioned EOR enhanced oil recovery, which is the injection of CO2 into the subsurface to drive oil and gas out of the ground and actually improve production, but it does end up sequestering carbon. So, Brad, if you wouldn't mind, uh, for our lay audience out there who have not spent time in the universe of carbon capture and sequestration, could you tell us what the technology is? What would a project look like? What is sequestration? Do you build something? Do you drill a hole? What the heck is going to happen here? Okay, that's a, I'll try to I'll try to summarize it and maybe if you have some follow-up questions, but to keep it simple, first of all, 
it is absolutely capturing carbon dioxide, but in some circumstances, like in the steel industry, for example, it also 45Q applies to the capture of carbon monoxide because it ultimately becomes CO2 in the process if you don't capture it. And so it applies to both depending on the industry. And in the terms of geologic storage, what it is, is it's taking that captured CO2 uh, if it's, let's use an example, like let's say it's um, at a refinery, um, that CO2 is captured at the refinery, it's compressed and into what's called a liquid phase or a dense phase. And so you can get a lot of CO2, which is otherwise a gas into a pipeline. We've had 50 years experience uh, transporting CO2 by pipeline, have over 5,000 miles of pipeline in the United States. There's never been a, a single fatality or major accident in those 50 years. So that whole process is very safe and straightforward. And then that CO2 is transported by pipeline to where it can be stored. And there's two types of geologic storage. One is storing CO2 in the very same oil and gas basins from which oil and gas is produced, obviously those formations, those geo geologic formations contained oil and gas at pressure for millions of years. So they're ideal for storing gases. So one way the CO2 is stored is they inject the CO2 into a producing oil field. That CO2 actually helps liberate the remaining oil in the oil field and then it can be pumped back up to the surface. The majority of the CO2 remains in the oil field itself. Whatever CO2 comes back up with the oil, this, the oil company strips back out and re-injects it back into the oil field. And what you end up with is permanent storage of that CO2 that was injected. Now, some people will say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Here you go to all this effort, you capture the CO2 that would otherwise go into the atmosphere, but you turn around and produce more oil with it. That's true, but you put a lot more CO2 in the ground than you bring out in the form of oil. So that's that's one form of storage and it has a climate benefit. The kind of storage that is being looked at more and more and most of the projects that uh, Jason referenced are being developed uh, for this type of storage, that's called saline storage. So all many areas of the United States, there are vast geologic formations that have salty water in them at great depths and that's not drinking water and that water serves no purpose, but those reservoirs have rock above them and below them that are impenetrable or impermeable is the correct word. And they can take the addition of much more CO2 in those reservoirs. And so um, in fact, the, the capacity of these saline reservoirs is so large that we could store centuries and centuries, perhaps thousands of years worth of CO2 in them. And that's long-term where the industry is headed, is storing all this CO2 in these saline reservoirs. And the EPA, and as Jason mentioned, increasingly states like Louisiana um, have a regulatory process in place to both permit the injection and storage of the CO2, but also to monitor it over time. I guess maybe the final thing I'll say is that unlike a lot of things that we do where we're storing things underground or in landfills or whatever, um, the risk goes down over time of CO2 storage. The monitoring and in, in the, the caution that's needed is really necessary upfront when you're injecting the CO2, but over years and decades, that CO2 actually binds with the rock and becomes part of that geologic formation. 
So the longer that CO2 is in the in the geologic formation, the more secure it becomes over time. All right, Brad. So take me into the room when you're discussing this and you got the enviros over there in the corner. Are they like pulling their hair out when they're talking about permanent? We're going to pump it and pipeline it back down. <clears throat> or, or are they? I mean, obviously, there's a sense of urgency here. <laughs> I mean, we've got to do something and we're not going to start stop uh, burning carbon uh, as a as an energy source. So we got to do something. But I mean, you, you describe this this unanimous coalition. How was that? How did that go over? Because I know, Peter, we on this show when we were talking to Dr. Susan Havorka uh, in 2019, uh, we our initial reaction was like, wait a minute. Hold on a second. You mean to tell us that the oil and gas industry is going to get paid to be pumped, like just the initial that initial reaction then you know we had to get become a little bit more practical about it but i'm just curious to know what that process was like you know that internal political consensus building process within your within the coalition how did that go over well in the first few years it was a little more challenging folks have to get to know each other and build some trust and learn about each other's concerns and perspectives so in the first few years we actually took we took the group of companies, company executives and environmental advocates and labor union reps, and we actually went to Texas and we visited oil fields where they're injecting and storing CO2. Uh, we went also to locations where they're injecting in a saline formation as well. And experts, both with the companies, but also independent experts, we invited them in to talk about what they do and how they do it and the regulatory and safety protocols that are in place. And the reality is, and you know, uh, environmental advocates who are fact-based about this, look at the history of the industry. We've injected over a billion tons of CO2 uh, into geologic formations in the United States in the past 50 years uh, with very few incidents and certainly no accidents. And there's now a long record of secure and permanent geologic storage in these various ex examples. And if you look globally, there's now over a quarter billion tons of CO2 that's been injected into geologic formations solely for the purpose of geologic storage where there's no oil production involved. And so if you're a climate advocate and you're very concerned about how do we get emissions to zero by 2050, what you see in this process is a way to manage literally billions and billions of CO, tons of CO2 over the next 30 years and beyond. And that CO2 that we don't have to figure out another way to reduce through other measures. That's the important thing that I think we emphasize in this is we're not saying that carbon capture is the entire climate solution. It's a solves a percentage of the problem, but we still have to scale up renewable energy, dramatically increase energy efficiency, maintain our existing nuclear plants, which have zero emissions, as well as look at advanced nuclear technologies. Solving the climate problem is not about one thing, it's about many things. And I think in most environmental advocates, as long as we can, as long as we're prioritizing all these other things that are necessary as well, are willing to support this as one of the strategies. Well, that is an understandable uh, uh, conclusion to reach, and, and, and we feel uh, the same way. 45Q, and the reason we wanted to do the show, is we want our audience to understand that if you're wondering whether the United States is taking any concrete action to address climate change, 
and greenhouse gas emissions? The answer to that question now with the update to 45Q is yes, there is an effort. There is money behind it in the form of tax credits. And there are investors and interested parties who are beginning to build the facilities necessary to take carbon dioxide out of the air or out of flue gas emissions from power plants or refinery complexes, and as you say, condense, pipe, and pump into the ground permanently this uh, CO2, which would otherwise reach the atmosphere. Um, it's a hell of a it's a hell of a policy, and I think it's pretty obscure. And I want to talk a little bit, uh, Brad, if you wouldn't mind, about how this is going to function in the rules. Uh, the administrative rules were adopted in final form January 6th, as we mentioned, 2021. They are available online. Uh, they The draft rules uh, were proposed in June of 2020. So, uh, But the rulemaking effort was a very intensive two-year process, it looked like to us from the outside. Can you, Brad, take us a little bit into that process of rulemaking what were the major issues to be resolved? How did that discussion go? Obviously reached a culmination, a successful outcome. But can you tell us a little bit about the rulemaking and what was driving the discussion? Well, so first of all, the rule itself provides the rules of the road, if you will, for any company as a project developer or, who are, or investor who's backing the project so they can understand what the requirements are and, and they, they need to have certainty about that in order to invest and make a financial decision. So there's just a general importance that that the IRS has completed that process, finalized the rules, so there's no longer any questions about which types of projects will qualify and which ones won't. But in that context, um, there were a few major issues that were of critical importance. Uh, one is, you, you raised the question about secure geologic storage. In order to claim the tax credit under 45Q for geologic storage, you have to, it's not enough just to inject the CO2 and go to the IRS and say, I want the credit. You have to demonstrate that that CO2 has been securely stored and you do that through a process of monitoring, reporting and verification. And the, that is done and administered through the Environmental Protection Agency and the, uh, and the IRS has now created an additional pathway using a private sector standard, private sector ISO standard, where you can demonstrate that you've stored the CO2. But, but clarity from the IRS on what the expectations and rules are around what constitutes secure geologic storage and how you demonstrate that for the purposes of claiming the tax credit, that was probably the most visible and important uh, point of discussion. Um, also, in the federal law that was passed in 2018, the law stipulates quite rightly that if you end up not storing the CO2, then the federal government has the right to claim back the credits. They call it credit recapture. And so, no one disputes that that should be that way because if you're not storing the co2 then you don't deserve the credit but the way in which credit recapture occurs is really important to investors so they understand their risk so so that was another area where we worked with the irs to come up with proposals that both uh, protected the environmental purposes of the law which was to store co2 uh, as well as providing investors with the confidence they needed to to support some of these projects the other issue that was really important is the law 
uh, basically says that if you're in an industrial facility, you have to capture at least 100,000 tons of CO2 a year to qualify for the tax credit. That was not our preference. We would have liked to have no restrictions, any industrial facility, but that's what's in the law. So then the question becomes, if you're an industrial facility that's less than 100,000 tons, can you join with another facility nearby? Like we're talking about Louisiana, there are many industrial facilities right near each other, concentrated in states like Louisiana and Texas. Uh, can can these facilities join together in a common project to qualify for the tax credit? Right. Um, those are the kinds of things. There, there. Are, oh, the other one I'll just mention very quickly is you have to begin construction uh, of your project by a certain time in order to qualify for the tax credit. And so, how the IRS defines beginning construction for a project is that steel in the ground? Is it a major investment? What does it actually mean? That was another thing that the rule uh, covers, which is really important. It, you know, you can imagine uh, here that the underlying policy is to drive investment, to drive activity, to yep. remove CO2 from the atmosphere and to spend the money and figure out the technology to get it out of the atmosphere in a variety of different ways. Uh, the investor interest here is one of the critical parts of 45Q, that these are tradable tax credits independent investor groups can invest in and own the uh, facilities that sequester uh, and capture CO2. And therefore, we're trying to create what amounts to is a CO2 sequestration market. So I do understand the IRS's uh, interest and the investor community's interest in being very clear about the recapture provisions, the qualifications, the grouping of facilities. All of this is amazingly complicated and interesting. But here's what we haven't told our listeners yet is what is the tax credit worth? And uh, there are three different types of tax creditable activities that I want to describe for our listeners. Um, and the first one is called disposal. And it's the Pull one. Pull out your pencils, everybody. Get out your pencils here. This is something worth paying attention to as a listener. I know it gets a little bit cryptic, but if you're if you're capturing CO2 out of a flume gas at a power plant or other industrial facility that's releasing CO2, and that CO2 is, is captured, condensed, pipelined, and pumped into the ground, that's called disposal. Uh, the tax credit rate for every ton of CO2 that you capture and pump into the ground securely, right now in 2020, the tax credit is worth about $32 a ton. I'm gonna use round numbers, it's $31.77 in 2020. And it goes up every year up to $50 a ton where it is capped, except that it is inflation adjusted. That is, a, uh, that is secured geologic storage, $50 essentially a ton beginning in 2026. Um, if the, well, let's just stop with, let's do method number one. Uh, this is the disposal tax credit. Uh, it seems pretty generous to me uh, as an outsider. And I'll just say that I did a little looking up. If you burn a gallon of gasoline, Tyler, which weighs around, uh, I think, eight pounds, it produces, guess what, 20 pounds of CO2. For every gallon of gasoline wow. you burn, you get 20 pounds. That means for 100 gallons of gasoline burned in your tank, you will produce a ton of CO2, right? So $50 tax credit to eliminate that 100 gallons of gasoline CO2 
is going to get you $50. That is 50 cents per gallon value in that tax credit if you were just isolating this as a source. Uh, so for me, I thought, gee, $50 a ton, that's a real incentive as a tax credit. You can really make some money here if you're able to capture CO2 and put it into the ground. Um, Brad, what do you think about the tax credit level? Did they hit the right number in Congress? Um, well, I, I think for, uh, let me start with that question first, and then I'll talk about the disposal part. Uh, $50 a metric ton is a good starting point uh, for industries like natural gas processing, hydrogen production, fertilizer production, uh, ethanol. Um, that's a that's a very uh, effective level at driving investment and capturing CO2 from those industries, especially because the cost of capture, they produce very much more concentrated streams of CO2. So whenever the CO2 is more concentrated, it costs less to capture. So at one end of the spectrum, you might have an ethanol plant where you're basically producing alcohol. And what do you, when you ferment alcohol, what do you get? You get water and CO2 essentially. So that's very low cost carbon capture in an ethanol plant. At the other end of the spectrum, stripping CO2 out of the atmosphere is very costly because the CO2 is, is very dilute. It's not concentrated. And so for those, uh, that's also true of power plants. The, the CO2 and flue gas in a power plant is not nearly as concentrated. So for those industries, $50 a ton in most circumstances is not going to be enough. So over time, there's going to be a need either to increase that credit value for those industries where the cost of carbon capture is higher or come up with other policies that will supplement um, but at least as a start, it's a really important incentive. Let me just say one thing. The IRS uses very strange language for these categories. They say disposal. What they really mean is capturing and storing that CO2 in saline geologic formations where you're not producing any oil. So the idea is the CO2 is put in the reservoir and it's a pure storage model. Um, and that's why there's a higher credit value because you're not producing any oil in the process so you don't get any revenue from oil production all right I can explain the other two or do you want to ask me about them? I, i've got a pause here boy okay. I've, I've i've got my pencil out i'm trying to do the math in my head but help help me brad under okay so uh peter i, I liked i liked this uh you know, you take a gallon of gas. This is good for me because I have familiar familiarization, uh, at, you know, with gasoline. Uh, you you burn a gallon of gas. It costs, I don't know, $2.50 is what it costs. And I know that the cost of, of that fuel reflects going out, drilling for it, pulling it out, of finding it. First, you got to find it and permit it and go get it and engineer the pipe. And go out and send the guys down, get the oil out of the ground, get it out pipeline it to a refinery facility, refine it, and then send it around the world, I guess, to the gas station where I will pump it into my fuel tank. And I know that that $2.50 per gallon is the market rate for all of that activity. And the activity of the 50 cent credit, is that is that all, is that all of the value associated with is that a silly way to look at it? But I mean, I'm, I'm trying to like assess how that's going to pay for the, the, the Peter, help me out here. Well, I, 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 I just, I, is that I, a silly way to look at well, it? Well, I, first of all, I think Brad uh, would pr pr 
uh, clarify that uh, carbon capture sequestration tax credits don't apply at the gasoline level like I this. I understand. But, I understand. But yeah, I think it's when I look at it from the standpoint of just combustion of gasoline and every gallon produces 20 gallons. So 100 gallons produces 2,000 pounds, which is a ton, means that I'm going to get $50 for every 100 gallons of gasoline equivalent of CO2. And I've got to think, man, that's that's got to be like the most uh, profitable thing you could do with a gallon of gasoline is to get the tax credit. But in fairness, I think that analysis is, is slippery and not quite accurate because, as I think Brad is pointing out, the $50 sequestration tax credit applies to these and really works functions where you have concentrated CO2 production where there can be a scrubber that separates that CO2 and lets you get it into the ground. Um, and Brad, I think what you said is there are many industries where $50 a ton tax credit is insufficient to drive innovation and sequestration activity. Uh, let's let's talk about the injection. Can I, enhanced, can I just I mean, circle so that, back? Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I just I'm, want to clarify, I'm clarify to that. that. I, I'm just thinking as a uh, as just a real simpleton here. If it if it's two dollars and fifty cents yeah. to get it into my tank, yeah, one would theoretically believe that it would be two dollars and fifty cents to put it back. I just you know, there's just a because it's basically well, a reverse well, activity. Here's, here's you know, the, help us out, guys. Aaron, help us out, guys. Bear in mind is that right now uh, in the United States, uh, emitting CO two into the atmosphere is cost free. Right. So the process of there, it's kind of a multi-phase process here. You have to capture the CO2, you have to compress it. You have to, in most cases, not every case, in most cases have build some length of pipeline to transport the CO2. And then you have to have at the point of injection equipment on the surface for the injection of that CO2. It's a very, very capital intensive process. Yeah. And so, um, and you're competing against an alternative where the emissions are, are being released free of cost. Uh, there's no tax on emissions in the United States. There is in some countries, but not in the United States. Uh, at least not, not at the federal level, there are in some states. So I think that's part of the challenge. The other thing that we need to bear in mind though, is that when you get beyond these industry sectors where the CO2 is less concentrated and it's more costly to capture, it will always be more expensive than when the CO2 is concentrated. But let's not forget the lessons we've learned from all these other technologies, whether it's wind, solar, hydraulic fracturing of natural gas and oil, whatever energy technology you're thinking about, the very first few times it was deployed, it was very expensive. The first yeah. wind farms in California were very mm -hmm. costly and they didn't work very well. But today, wind power is one of the cheapest forms of generating electricity in the world and it's very reliable. Yeah. And why is that? Because the tax credit drove all this investment and basically people learned how to uh, they learned how to manufacture the technology. They learned how to construct the projects. They learned how to finance them. And each time they did it, they got a little bit better and they created supply chains and everything else. Everything got more efficient over time. That's what we need to do with carbon capture is have this tax credit over a period of many years, drive this innovation and investment. So we bring the costs down. 
that's the really all and ultimately the point of the tax credit outstanding uh, uh, that's an outstanding view and understandable as well um it, and 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 maybe by picking the low-hanging fruit, the concentrated CO two emissions in air, regions of the country where the formations are are available and nearby, and the capital investment isn't overwhelming, the tax credit can, as you say, prove the technology. Let's get the kinks out of it before it can be yep. expanded. Uh, yep, there, that's exactly right. There's a couple other methods you can earn a tax credit, and we talked about you know pumping it into the saline subsurface uh, uh, features that securely store it. There's the injection for enhanced oil recovery we've mentioned, and then there's something called utilization. And I'm going to bother all of the listeners out there because I'm going to try to read the definition of what is utilization of CO2 that qualifies for a tax credit. And there's three sentences here. So this is what 45QF sub five has to say. Utilization of qualified carbon oxide means, number one, the fixation of carbon oxide through photosynthesis or chemosynthesis, such as growing algae or bacteria. That's number one. All right. Number two, the chemical conversion of carbon oxide to a material or chemical compound in which the oxide is securely stored. I'm going to produce a I'm going to produce some material that's going to hold CO2. That's interesting. Or number 3, the use of a qualified carbon oxide for any other purpose for which a commercial market exists. Those are the three ways that you can utilize CO2. And obviously, Brad, what we're talking about here is that we're not pumping the CO2 into the ground. We're going to actually do something with it that's right. going to have a net reduction in atmospheric CO2 levels. Help us understand 45QF5 utilization. What the hell are they talking about? So I, I will do it without the terminology because I Great. think it's easier. Um, one of the exciting things that's happening, and it's it's very dynamic, there are entrepreneurs and innovators across the country and the world who are motivated by the challenge of climate change and want to make money while while helping to solve that problem and they are developing investing in and commercializing different ways to take the captured carbon whether it's co2 carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide and to transform it into economically valuable products and, and this is the important part, and reduce emissions in the process. So the key thing here is when you take that captured carbon, where that's from an industrial facility, a power plant, or directly from the atmosphere, and you turn it into a product, the only way you can get the tax credit is by demonstrating with an actual technical analysis that the process you've come up with to manufacture that product results in lower CO2 emissions than the conventional process in the marketplace. So uh, one example, you mentioned, uh, you know, fixation of CO2 in algae. If you use CO2 to grow algae, you capture CO2 from a power plant. You use that CO2 to grow algae. And then you produce from that algae liquid fuels. Then you, you can claim credit for the emissions reductions that result from that process. It's not storage, 
but at least you can demonstrate that it, use, it ha results in fewer emissions than maybe the fossil fuel it's replacing. Another example is under the chemical side, the chemical conversion side, um, it takes large volumes of CO2 to manufacture cement. I think it's about one ton of CO2 emissions for every ton of Portland cement that's manufactured. It's part of the chemistry. Uh, when, you when you process lime to make cement, limestone to make cement, you in inevitably produce CO2. There's also CO2, uh, the, but you can also reduce those CO2 emissions when you make the concrete, because when concrete cures, it cures with CO2. Well, if you take the CO, capture CO2, uh, again, from an industrial facility or power plant, and then you blend it into the concrete as it's curing, and it becomes part of that concrete permanently, and it's not re-released to the atmosphere. And it can also even strengthen the concrete in the process over a conventional concrete. Wow. So there's also examples of, of taking CO2 and synthesizing CO2 into chemicals that you know support our modern economy. These are there's just many many examples where the private sector and the research community are are looking at ways to transform CO2 into products and 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 create a, a an alternative for market for carbon in the in the process. And that's this application of the tax credit is is designed to be a catalyst for that and really incentivize that whole process of innovation. And drive and drive that innovation. And for the listeners out there, the tax credit maximum available for this utilization method of CO2 reduction or the injection for enhanced oil recovery is not $50 at its peak, it's $35. So you can't earn as much through these other methods. But it's really interesting, and Brad, I've got to say, for the people who worked on both the legislation in 2018 through this intensive rulemaking process with the IRS that resulted in the rules that came out just a few weeks ago, uh, deserve a pat on the back. Uh, this is a really complicated uh, uh, set of rules uh, governing its tax policy with technical policy uh, very specific guidelines here. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a great. I, I will just say this. My impression is I don't know how this is all going to play out and what the net effect is going to be. There is reason to be hopeful here, and what it is is one of the first substantial steps that I've seen, coordinated at the federal level, backed by revenues from the treasury in the form of credits that may begin the process of uh, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions around the country. And, uh, you know, good on you is what I would say to the coalition and everybody involved. Do you mind if we do a final thoughts round, Peter? Yeah, no, I think we should. I actually have a final question. Okay. Um, and I'll, I'll kick it off. And, I'm, you know, I'll kick this to both uh, Brad and Jason. We'll start with Brad. Uh, I'm wondering, so, you know, clearly this is the carrot approach. Uh, and I do believe, I think you're right, this does incentivize kind of a new sector, a new genre of activity that I think is absolutely critical. I agree as a taxpayer that we should be subsidizing these activities. I'm wondering if a if a carbon tax is something that you see as being necessary. That would be the stick, I would say, of the other end of incentivization uh, with with regard to our our carbon uh, our our national carbon footprint. Is that something that you? have discussed with the coalition, uh, Brad and Jason, is that something that you would, uh, 
that you think that the industry there in Louisiana would be down for, I realize maybe down the road a ways. Let's start with Brett. So the Carbon Capture Coalition has discussed uh, a carbon tax and carbon pricing policies extensively. And as you might imagine, we have some in the coalition who are passionate supporters of of having such a policy at the federal level. And, and we have some who aren't quite ready to support it yet. Um, I think what the coalition does agree on though, is that over the long term, uh, a carbon price alone would not be enough because if a carbon price were to be high enough to actually support some of these activities, especially let's say if you're in the cement industry and you're, you're deploying carbon capture for the first time in the world at a cement plant, which is being proposed actually in Colorado under the 45Q tax credit, um, the carbon price that you need would be very high to justify the first project. And I think politically it would be very difficult in this country for Congress to enact a carbon price that high. So it's really important to have targeted incentives like this. We know we need certain technologies in the marketplace to address climate change over the long term. So at minimum, we'll need, uh, in addition to a carbon price, some of these policies like 45Q that make sure that we get those technologies to a commercial scale and widely deployed. Jason? Sure. I think that I'll echo some of Brad's comments. I mean, we, we've touched on a lot of the complexities, right? So, I mean, so Louisiana has a very complex industrial structure. Structure. We have oil and gas producers, a tremendous amount of manufacturing. And basically what, what Brad just described in terms of the level of involvement in terms of the processing, the transportation, I don't think that there's one size fits all. And, and, and obviously this is a topic that we're going to explore down the road, I think that the governor's uh, climate initiative task force is a, is a great opportunity to talk about some of these things. And we will be talking about some of these things, but I, I think for now, there's not necessarily a price that we can put out there and just say, if we do this, then we're going to drive all this business and industry. I think that having that targeted specific driver to try to help and get the low hanging fruit, work on further incentives, work on further policies, and really try to just to start to propel the industry forward. And then, you know, let's figure out what works, what doesn't work. I mean, when we do projects and you go through permitting, you're going to learn lessons. You're going to learn how to be more efficient. So we're going to try to get some of these projects done. We're going to probably make mistakes in going through those processes, but we're going to do everything that we can to try to be a very nimble and efficient agency to make projects happen in a very safe and secure manner. So I think for us right now, we're just, we're focused on trying to get projects in the state and trying to get uh, the industry started so we can we can really turn this into an economy that's going to be around for a long period of time. Well, Jason, I think I join with uh, Americans all along the American shoreline and around the world who wish uh, your, your state well and the coalition well in the implementation of 45Q. Let's see if these technologies can be deployed and economically uh, function for the investors, for the producers, uh, the folks who are out there uh, trying to do their best to reduce uh, CO2 emissions. Uh, I have one last question, Brad. I'll throw this your way. I think you'll know it. If I'm reading the rules correctly, that the the uh, carbon sequestration tax credit under 45Q is capped at 750 million tons. Am I right about that or is it 75 million tons? No, actually that's one of the changes that we got done in 2018. It's 
we didn't talk about this, but it's one of the reasons why the original 45Q tax credit never worked because it was capped. Uh. If you're an investor and you're working with a company that wants to develop a project that will take maybe six, eight years before it's all complete and operational, if the tax credit is capped, you can't be confident that the tax credit will be available once the project starts operating. I see. And so what we were able to achieve with Congress in 2018 was to eliminate the cap. I see. So now as you're an investor thinking way out ahead, working with a, a company or an industry, you can have confidence that if you develop a project that meets the requirements of the 45Q tax credit, you can know as a matter of law that that tax credit will be available for you to use and help finance your project. Well, outstanding. Thank you for the clarification. I have to admit that the uh, the the rulemaking was complicated, and I uh, yeah. appreciate that clarification very much. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thanking our guest Brad Crabtree, who is the director of the Carbon Capture Coalition and the vice president for carbon management at the Great Plains Institute in the great state of North Dakota. Uh, and Jason Langclough, who is the director of the Louisiana State Energy Office, two important players in the development of 45Q from the legislation through the rulemaking. Uh, we can't thank you guys enough for spending an hour walking us down the path of 45Q, and, and uh, we really wish you well in the coalition uh, in the implementation of this very important initiative uh, from Congress and the IRS. Thanks to you both. It was an honor to be part of your program. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, guys. Pleasure to talk to you and enjoyed very much answering these questions. Thank you. Thank you both. My father's mine was you. Birds on the lawn, sunlight at dawn. Singing mama now. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back with a special bonus segment here. Uh, we had just turned off the recorder, and then I had one final question stuck in my mind. And that question is, what lessons uh, or, or, I guess, advice might you both give our audience, our broad coastal audience, in developing a consensus here on these rules? On the American shoreline, all over the place, we are faced with controversial decisions to retreat or not to armor or not, to develop in certain places or not. And we fight about them and we, we try to develop public policy, but we there's a lot of strife in the process. And the 45Q rule set was for sure a uh, controversial uh, process. So I ask, uh, Brad, starting with you, uh, what, what, would you, what would you tell our audience about that process and advice on, on reaching a consensus? Well, so I think the first thing to do is you need to, and, and this, I think the governor of Louisiana and Jason and others involved are doing this, is bring together some re representatives of the really important interests that are affected by the outcome. So that's step number one. Then I think what's really important is to focus on what do people want in the future. And what I have found over I've been doing this for kind of work in different ways for a little more than 25 years. And I have found that even people who have very different worldviews, you know, we have, you know, 
coasts and heartland, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, we're divided every which way in this country right now. But if you ask people what they want for the future, you will find that there is actually a lot of common ground. So, so we're trying to define what people want to accomplish together is a first step. A second step is to not spend time and energy assigning blame to what went wrong in the past. You will not find that people, diverse groups of people will agree on who's to blame. And it doesn't actually help you solve the problem in the future anyway. And then the, the, the other thing that we really try to do is once we've you know, got people focused on what they want to accomplish, we then ask them to focus and work on those things they agree on and agree to leave aside the things they disagree on, maybe not forever, but at least as a start. And to, to start on the things that they agree on and work from there and build out. Because too often people go immediately to their differences and then, or they do make some progress and then they turn to another issue that they don't have any hope of resolving and they get bogged down and angry and frustrated. And I see that happening a lot in politics. I see it happening when groups of thoughtful Americans get together in their community or like what's happening in Louisiana at the state level. But I think if you follow that general approach, people are actually energized by that. It's not that people like conflict. They actually can get a lot of energy and enthusiasm about making progress together, but you have to channel that in the right way. Boy, I tell you, Todd, I appreciate that question. And uh, there couldn't be a more appropriate time to think about the te- how you approach consensus at a time and division on tough topics. And I do think you guys have shown the way and I really appreciate Jason, I guess. What did what what do you say is a lesson learned on why this process was successful from your standpoint? Uh, I think that's a that's a great question, and and I would like to give a shout out to our, our CPRA, and and I spent time there as, as an employee. I, I had a lot of passion, and the folks there have tremendous passion for the coast in Louisiana. Chairman Klein still leading that effort, and I think that you know the master plan that the state has put together that gets updated every six years serves as the framework for how Louisiana is going to make coastal investments. For us at the Department of Natural Resources, we saw carbon capture and geologic storage as something that could walk hand in hand with the coastal crisis occurring in Louisiana. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're losing land, we're fighting the fight of sea level rise and a lot of other things that are happening in coastal Louisiana. This gives us an opportunity to be able to do things and to do projects that are good for Louisiana, that help our state, and that potentially can protect those investments that we're making in coastal Louisiana. And I think that the Governor's Climate Initiative Task Force and partnership, bringing those state agencies together, working with stakeholders and informing them on what we're doing and what the process is and giving them a voice to to say that, guys, look, we're, we're going through this process. We're trying to implore every type of technology. We're trying to encourage economic development. We're trying to work with business and industry to make sure that they're operating in a very efficient manner and a safe manner so they can reduce long, uh, greenhouse gas emissions in the long term. I think that those things, when you couple those efforts together and you have folks at different agencies who are rowing in the same direction, that that's how you affect positive change. And I think that that's what our, our goal is at, at DNR is to try to play a role in that and to work with our sister agencies and to, to, to achieve goals that are good for Louisiana, 
good for our economy, that preserve jobs, and that we can continue to, to have a great state to live in that has an active and vibrant coast. I love that. I think some uh, lessons about uh, just democracy in general right there in that in both of those answers. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Jason and Brad, for this special bonus segment on the American Shoreline Podcast.